on Mountain Meister. Yeah, the first thing is don't get attacked by a walrus. <laughs> Not a good idea. But yeah, a, a walrus attack. And kind of took a pass under us, and I just literally felt something kind of lift me up from underneath. And in this, quite possibly the best walrus attack story you've ever heard. As he came out of the water, his head was probably three to four feet out of the water, which put it above my head in these tusks. The first thought I had and my only real line of defense was using my paddle, and I just kind of did a stiff... Okay, so maybe you can't relate to a walrus attack, but you can relate to this. For me, it's, it's really important to keep that tension between where you're at and where you want to be. Welcome to the podcast that explores the most interesting, intriguing, and inspiring topics. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your host, Ben Shank. Hello, Meister fans. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Russell. Hello, Russell. Hello, listeners. This is Ben. Today on the show, we have Eric Boomer. Eric is a professional photographer and whitewater kayaker that has been featured in numerous adventure films. In 2011, he and his adventure partner, John Turk, became the first to ever circumnavigate Canada's Ellesmere Island, a 1,500-mile journey that took 104 days. Eric was selected as one of the 2011 National Geographic Adventurers of the Year. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Russell and Ben. It's a pleasure to be on the Skype with you. <laughs> We're happy to have you. And, I mean, Eric, we look at these pictures of you flying off of these waterfalls, and I have two questions. The first one is how, and the second one is why. <laughs> so let's go, with, let's go with the why. Why do you do this? Um, for, for me personally, I, I had a, a connection to water at a really young age, being out on rivers, and it was just kind of how my family recreated, doing fishing trips, and uh, there was always a few real easy whitewater rapids that we'd end up negotiating, and I would find myself walking back up to maybe swim through some of them, and those rapids really captured my imagination, and from that point on, I just started visualizing and anytime I saw a kayaker in a waterfall in a magazine or anything like that it was it was just kind of a a beep in me that just said you know I want to do that someday and even rapids that our family would be driving beside and we'd stop to look at this this rapid after a trip called Selway Falls that's kind of a class five my dad just reminded me the other day he said yeah I remember when we got out to look at that waterfall and you know, you said, I'm going to run that one day. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, my best answer for your question is, is just that yeah, I was enthralled for it. There was nothing else that I would rather be doing than being that person. It's, it's literally gives me the chance to, to be the person I, I dreamt about when I was a little kid. Hmm. 
So you negotiated the smaller ones, like you said, and eventually you started hitting some bigger ones and much, much, much bigger ones. For our listeners, if you haven't seen what Eric is doing, we'll have everything on our website and links to his website. These pictures are absolutely incredible. I mean, how big are these waterfalls? Well, some of the biggest waterfalls that I've done are around 100 feet. Um, (laughs) Now, the size does not always mean that it's a more difficult or dangerous waterfall. Sometimes some of the shorter ones can have more dangers in them and, and be something more extreme. But visually and for the pictures... The, there's something really clear about the height yeah. that really speaks to people. So, you know, I personally have pushed it to that 100 feet, 110 foot mark. But some of my friends, a select few who I have had the pleasure to photograph, stepped it up a bit higher. And the, the biggest example I'll use, which is the world record waterfall. And it was this world record was set in uh, 2010. I think. And so it's it stood for quite a while, but it's at 190 feet. Oh wow. my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And that's on Palouse Falls and it's in Eastern Washington up in the, the flat farmlands. Is there a difference between a 90 foot waterfall and a 190 foot waterfall or is it pretty much the same thing? It going over the lip of the waterfall is the easiest part. Anybody can do that. You were, you were asking the, the how. And uh, to, to send yourself over the lip is, is uh, simple. Anybody can do it. The river will take you over the edge of the lip. But mitigating and making it so that your impact is not going to hurt you, you're not going to get injured in the falls, that's where the real calculations and, and everything comes into play. And when you raise the height of the waterfall from 100 feet to 190 feet, every movement that you make, every little mistake, every uh, bit of force that you put in your paddle, as soon as you leave the lip of the drop, you lose so much of your control that those mistakes and those movements become amplified, and especially the higher you go. So it's easier to have a crash like going over the handlebars of the waterfall, which basically means you do a front flip. You, you, you don't uh, go as planned. And a well-planned descent would be the, the biggest thing is lessening your G-force. Mm-hmm. So you want to pencil directly into the water so that you don't hurt your back. If you flatten out, the, the G-force can be so great that you'll easily break a back. And it happens a lot. But uh, if you pencil in, it will reduce the impact. Okay, so Eric, eventually you hit the bottom of the waterfall and you hit the water. What does that feel like? Honestly, the way it feels to run a waterfall, the the best way I've heard to describe it is a baseball bat to the chest, a car wreck, (laughs) a uh, football hit. Uh, It it typically is not the most smooth thing. Either way, it's going to be a big impact. And you have to just really prepare yourself, buck up, and and take the hit. So between the way it feels and then usually the name of the waterfall, like Hell's Waterfall, I don't know. I feel like the names are just ridiculous sometimes. (laughs) Killer Fang Falls is one of my favorites. Why would you want to put your body through that? Uh, You know, waterfall kayaking is a bit of a young man's sport. (laughs) I'm about 29 years old, and... 
it is making me feel really old, which is surprising because I'm pretty young. Right now, it seems like the peak for whitewater kayakers are around the 25, 20 to 25, 26 years old is, is when people are going their biggest. And, you know, there, there is a bit of a, a, a drive to see your picture in a magazine. But for me, the, the desire was just this puzzle that I could solve, figuring out how to safely get down this waterfall and... As far as the hit is concerned, I grew up with two older brothers that were really big and really tough and about 10 years older than I am. So while I was 10 years old, those two were getting drafted into, you know, the heavyweight wrestler for Nebraska and the other one was drafted into the CFL for as a linebacker wow. in Canada and they they gave me the school of hard knocks. <laughs> for me a, a love pat was was something that hurt a lot of people. So I was, I was a bit fond of using my pain tolerance, and I felt that that was a strength. All their uh, lessons and, and taking time to uh, make me tougher, I feel like I, I really was able to tap into a lot of those strengths while I was when I'm running these waterfalls. What a great compliment to pay to your brothers to say that <laughs> their physical abuse feels like a waterfall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really, really sweet. They, I remember times they would hold, you know, they literally, so it, borderline torture, you know, they would hold me down and maybe it was a phone or a spoon and <laughs> they really got a kick out of just, you know, tapping me on the forehead and I would be crying and They'd go, all right, dude, this is tough training. The only way we're going to stop is when you stop crying and toughen up. And there was a lot of love in there. <laughs> well, I had saw a video of you that was really, really well done uh, about the next thing that we want to talk about, your Ellesmere Island trip. And you were talking about your brothers. Everyone has hardships growing up, but I didn't really get that connection until now, what the hardships <laughs> for you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, being the youngest of three boys when they're – I, I weigh about, at my heaviest, 180 pounds. And, and those two were meatheads. They were about 250 pounds, wow. or less than 5% body fat, always training. And yeah, that was kind of like their little science project. And my, <laughs> my parents, by that point, they'd put a lot of effort into really taking care of raising those two. And they kind of realized how kids kind of raise themselves, I think, by the time I came out. So. Hmm. My brothers really, uh, really reared me up. I, I feel like they were, as much as my parents are still my parents, my, my brothers were the hands that uh, <laughs> showed me how to interact with the world. Yeah, we could continue talking about uh, more your family. I mean, you have a very interesting background, especially with your kayaking. But I want to move to another extreme thing you did, which is very kayaking involved, but it's not a 100-foot cliff involved it's more a hundred mile of sea kayaking so 1500 miles 1500 miles and could you tell the listeners a little bit about Ellesmere Island and uh, what you and John Turk actually did there right so uh, just to start off I was introduced to John Turk through a mutual friend in a coffee shop and we began planning this expedition that would take around a hundred days and it would be on Ellesmere Island which is the second farthest north landmass in the world. So it's, it's pretty close, it, it really bordering the, the North Pole ice pack. And in fact, it's where um, Eric Larson, one of your previous guests, began 
his North Pole expedition mm-hmm. right on the north coast of Ellesmere Island. Uh, now, the planning for this trip started coming along. It was uh, a kayaker friend of mine who I mentioned, Tyler Brott, who has the world record for kayaking waterfalls. But just a month or two before leaving, Tyler broke his back on a waterfall, actually a 90-foot waterfall or 100-foot. So I got a call from John, who I'd met at the coffee shop once before, and I think we did a little shopping for the trip one other day, and we had a decision to make. Do we still want to do this thing? You know, there's only two of us, and that's going to make us weaker. And the one thing we didn't talk about but we both knew was, and we don't know each other, and we're (laughs) going to be in a tent for 100 days. So John and I thought about it, weighed out the pros and cons, and I think one of the things that really kept us together and kept us on the same page was our our love of of adventure and our love of the unknown and uncertainty. And I think that's why we both decided, you know what? People are telling us that maybe we shouldn't do this trip because, you know, we don't know each other. We don't have Tyler, but let's do it. Let's let's give it a try. And uh, upon that trip, we started at the southern point in the only community, which is the farthest north community in all of Canada, named Grease Fjord. A community of about 400 people, and we started going clockwise. We Now, when we started in May, the the Arctic Ocean, which we were skiing on, was frozen solid, hmm. totally frozen. So that was our highway, and it took about uh, 67 days of skiing, which equated to around 700 miles of skiing before the ocean started to break up and melt in July. And so you're going north at this point, right? Correct. Clockwise around the island, starting on the southern tip, heading okay. north. Gotcha. So the the ocean actually starts to melt the further north that you go because well, of the Well, it's because of sun. summer. Right. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. because of the time of the year. And and another factor was as we rounded the, the northern side of the island, we passed the place where Eric Larson and most North Pole groups start. Not far after there, we started to round the corner, and there's this straight this constriction between Ellesmere Island and Greenland this huge constriction goes down to about 10 kilometers in two places and that's really really narrow when you look at the size of the basins of the ocean you have the entire North Pole Ocean and then you have the Baffin Bay which feeds into the Atlantic Ocean and the only way through there, the main channel, is this Nary Strait, which we had to go through, where we found our first open, broken water. And there's these really, really powerful currents because of this narrow constriction that rip back and forth. And because of the ice in the North Pole ice pack, it acts almost as a big icebreaker. And if you watch the satellite imagery of this place in the time lapse, which is pretty fun to do it looks like a huge tube of toothpaste getting (laughs) squeezed out into baffin bay and all these huge ice chunks are just grinding and breaking along the shore of greenland and ellesmere as it kind of spreads out into baffin bay so yeah we were reading about this straight and i guess an analogy that i would use and tell me if i'm correct with this eric is that 
I, I thought about, you know, the tectonic plates that the Earth has, and when those kind of collide together, mountains form. And I've heard that the, these ice chunks moving together is almost a similar effect, where they crash together and can potentially shoot up ice into the air, basically. Oh, absolutely. And, and you don't um, want to get caught in between those on a <laughs> kayak. <laughs> no, no. The, and these sheets of ice, uh, to describe them a little bit better, um, when I think sheet of ice, I imagine something, you know, maybe a couple feet thick. Mm-hmm. These puppies are heavy duty. They are 15 to 20 feet thick in depth and then can range from, you know, anything the size of a get. It'll eventually be ground up into a basketball or smaller size. But some of these sheets are miles and miles long. Oh and gosh. as they reach this straight and, and have this pressure and this constriction with all this current and all this ice behind it, it starts to break up into smaller and smaller chunks. And there were times that John and I saw those giant tectonic plate type collisions happen right in front of us. And <laughs> one time we were trying to figure out how we would get around a corner and we saw this big ice pan which is an ice sheet floating by and it had current so we thought hey let's hop on that thing that's (laughs) about the size of a baseball diamond that looks like a good strong one that might be our best option and before we had a chance to hop on it the sheet kind of bumped into an iceberg that was parked on right near shore and it literally cracked and started moaning groaning and this huge thick piece of ice lifted up just like the two tectonic plates you're talking about probably 30 feet into the air as it broke and fell back over and uh john and i were just kind of standing there with our mouths open feeling real small and real stupid okay so now this is starting to make me understand why you get such good photographs it's because you put yourself into those those situations when you do run into these sort of problems, what kind of decisions do you need to make? I mean, these are life and death situations. How do you go about making them, whether you should proceed or not proceed? My best advice in, for that and what we continually go back to is uh, really taking a look at the very next step, what your next actionable movement or, or step is going to be the whole trip that John and I were on this this longer journey we'd get concerned about all these potential scenarios in the future of what if this what if that um, but we were continually reminded you know what we've got a lot of steps to make and even if it's later that day if we see the potential for some really bad things to happen uh, it's always easy just to focus on the next step. Hey, I'm going to take one more step. And then after that, one more step. And and it, as long as you feel comfortable and safe in that next step and you don't feel like that's putting you in danger, that's when I like to keep moving forward with awareness and and not wanting to get into a bad position. But to apply it to this situation, that day we did not go out in the water. Mm-hmm. And we ended up being stuck for almost 17 days in a tent. Um, the other interesting thing that I forgot to mention about John and I is we had a bit of an age difference. He was 67 years old, and I was 26 years old. A little bit. So we had some good tent time. We had 17 days of, of hanging out, and every day we'd go out and we'd analyze the conditions. And 
it was the decision was so tough because there were some times that John would say, "Hey, I, I think it looks like things are changing. I think we can get out in there." And at times, it, I felt like, "Okay, maybe let's let's start moving that direction and and be aware." But ultimately, and, and sometimes I would be the instigator, but something wasn't right. And we'd get to a point where we felt like the next step, that's a little too committing and going to get dangerous. And we would retreat back to shore until eventually, I'll tell you one, one quick journey that we'd tried that, that put us back in our place as well. An, another great ice sheet was floating by and it, there was less pressure. So we, we felt like the odds of it breaking up like a big tectonic plate and, and crushing us was very low. So we decided to work our way out onto this chunk that was floating south and would carry us through this constriction. And for about three to four hours, we were sailing at one knot per hour south. We were traveling faster and farther than we had for a long time. We were really happy. We felt like we were on an icebreaker. So we set up the tent and took a nap. And we woke up a few hours later and, and we're like, oh, awesome. We're still, we're moving even faster. We're moving at two knots per mile. And then we kind of reoriented the GPS and went, oh, we're heading north <sighs> at two knots per hour. And we found ourselves a ways from shore and eventually the ice set up and locked in and the pressure built, um, not enough to break anything, but enough that we were able to travel back to shore. And we were five miles north of where we were earlier that day. And um, that was one, one tough move, but it became really obvious when we could travel through because this southwest wind literally raked across all this ice and pulled it off of the shore and created this really, really great channel. And as it started forming, we were discussing, hey, I think it looks different, And but we'd been saying that for 17 days. So we had to be real cautious with it and analyze it. And it was about 9 or 10 o'clock at that, that night that uh, I went out to a viewpoint and it was like, man, I can almost see to Greenland. This is different. This has not looked like this for 17 days. And we hit the water at about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night and made it through the constriction by about 2 in the morning. And, of course, we're so far north in the summer that the, there's 24 hours sunlight. Mm -hmm. And, oh, and wow. we had great light to travel through. You have a ton of great stories from this trip, and I was reading an article that they were actually talking about in the New York Times for this, and they were talking about that 24-hour day sunlight and how you guys didn't quite bring enough sunscreen, so that was one lesson you learned. Uh, some, other, <laughs> some other lessons you learned was when a polar bear pokes his head in the tent, you have to scream and then chase him out, but... When you have another animal around, the Arctic wolf, you have to just kind of let him hang out. And if he wants to sleep next to your tent, you just kind of leave him. Uh, but one thing you didn't talk about was what to do if you get attacked by a walrus. So what do you do? I always thought, I always thought walruses were so slow moving that it wouldn't have mattered, but it doesn't sound like it. Yeah, the first thing is don't get attacked by a walrus. <laughs> Not a good idea. But yeah, uh, contrary to what you would think, for a, for a beast of nearly a ton to two tons, I think they average 1,000 to 4,000 pounds, depending on if it's a male or a female. They're really quick. They're not fast in the long run, but more than their running speed, they're really quick. They can snap their head back and forth. 
They really know how to use their tusks, and so much so that polar bears, the largest land mammal carnivore predator, I think that's the right wordage to use there. (laughs) Polar bears don't mess with walruses. Every now and then they'll get into a scuffle if it's a baby. But time and time again, polar bears get messed up when they mess with walruses. They they don't always win. So I don't want to mess with a polar bear. And I certainly don't want to mess with a a walrus. But out of nowhere on one day of paddling, it was literally just clear, clear, wonderful water the sky was real overcast and there were these wonderful icebergs just so peaceful we were paddling along and we noticed walruses in the distance but we knew they were a ways away and one must have been under the water as we came around a corner and he was under deep enough and kind of took a pass under us and i just literally felt something kind of lift me up from underneath and in the split second, he came bursting out of the water, just just like a Jaws movie. I don't like to over-explain things, but it, it really, I don't want to make this too dramatic, but it definitely felt like a Jaws moment. This beast just l- came out of the water. There was frothing waves. John said that he didn't think I was going to be able to stay upright because the wake and the wave was so big uh-huh. and that threw me into actually my whitewater kayak mode and I threw into a really really big brace which I think kept me upright and maybe saved my life oh my god this is this is a movie this needs to be a movie <laughs> where was your GoPro oh man if that thing had been rolling um, yeah it's this this really burned a huge impression into my memory but the the ironic thing is it was maybe 20 seconds hmm. long in 20 seconds in a really long, boring day, this 20 seconds of terror. Mm-hmm. But as he um, came out of the water, his head was probably three to four feet out of the water, which put it above my head in these tusks, pretty close. And all I, the first thought I had in my only real line of defense was using my paddle and I just kind of did a stiff arm hit move is the best way I can describe it. It was a stiff arm, but I definitely gave him all I could. And in doing so, I didn't push him back. What it did was it pushed me back and kept me away from him. So I was just keeping my distance. And he eventually went back down into the water. And at this point, he'd spun me at least 180 degrees and I was backwards from the direction I was heading, and there was some ice in front of me. So being in a sea kayak, if you've ever been in one, they are it's not something that turns on a dime. It takes a couple strokes, a couple forwards, backwards. And I kind of felt like Austin Powers trying to turn that car in that narrow hallway. <laughs> Two seconds later, he came back out of the water and charged me again, and I was able to do the same paddle plant. And I felt pretty proud of myself for this moment, but I realized, you know, I can't, hopefully he gives up at some point because I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to miss or something is going to change. But as he dropped down from this charge, I had a really good, clear, um, straightaway in front of me and just started digging. And, and John was kind of s- sitting 20 to 30 feet to the right. And he was just sitting there as I started charging away. And I, he was in such shock. I literally had to be like, John, 
let's get out of here now, you know, and, and, uh, we didn't stop paddling for, you know, 20, 30 minutes of really hard paddling. And oh, it wasn't until later God. that John told me the, uh, Inuit legend of, of what walruses do when they find kayakers. And it's, it's kind of scary. He, he actually had to ask my permission if I wanted to know what has happened to Greenlandic kayakers in the past. So, so apparently walruses have a really, really powerful suction mechanism. Mm-hmm. They use it to suck meat out of um, shells and, and um, mollusks and whatnot. They, they dig with those horns. Yeah. <laughs> and so apparently the, there have been some Greenlandic kayakers who've been found attacked by walruses and they have been found with their intestines sucked out. Oh, oh my gosh. Wow. wow. I guess yeah. we should have told the listeners to, to stop listening <laughs> if they needed to. But. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Well, that, ooh, that's, that's creepy. But so, Did you get a pretty good uh, high five to your football playing brother after uh, you told him the stiff arm story? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like the Heisman move. <laughs> oh, man. Wow, that is... That is an excellent story. That's a story that I would tell at every single bar that I would ever go to. <laughs> the funny thing is it takes longer to tell the story than the actual event even happened. <laughs> that's, that's, so, that's true. Anyway, we do need to move on a little bit. And one question that we like to ask all of our guests, and I think this will be a good one for you since you are an expert in many different outdoors activities. We were looking for a gear recommendation. Can you provide our listeners one piece of gear that you would recommend for them? Yeah, one piece of gear that I would recommend, I think it's the most versatile type of shelter that you can have, would be a river wing. And that's made by Northwest River Sports mm. at nrsweb.com. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is it's a small tarp. Um, actually, when you spread it out, there's a couple sizes, but I prefer the size that's small because I can still fit about three people underneath. And the things I love about it is I can use my paddles, I could use sticks, I could use ski poles, I can use whatever it is to prop up this tarp. And then through kind of interesting tying techniques, you can batten down the storm flaps, so to speak. But I feel really, really great with this because it keeps me dry and it keeps the air flowing so I don't get really sticky and humid and wet. Um, it keeps me shaded from the sun on really hot days. And the great thing is, is even after a really rainy day and it's sopping wet, I always hated packing this wet tent and trying to figure out a way, do I put it into mm-hmm. a dry bag or do I put it with my clothes? And this thing, you can just put it in, you can leave it out so it stays wet or put it in its own little dedicated wet bag because once you break it out the next night, you're hanging it up and it'll mm-hmm. dry quick or if it's wet, it still keeps you dry. And it's uh, just so minimal. I, I really love that piece. Very neat. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. Uh, we'll definitely throw that on our website for our listeners. And I personally have never really had a great tarp that I'd want to bring anywhere. So it just even the sweet. concept of bringing a tarp instead of another flap for your tent or, or anything is just great, especially for the minimalism you need on your trip. So, And, of course, I, I'm not recommending to bring that. To, into the Arctic. You may want a heavy-duty <laughs> tent if you're planning a trip into the Arctic. But for uh, most of the trips that I think your listeners are doing and that I grew up doing in the States, it's it's perfect. Nice. Great. 
Well, we want to finish up with one more question, and it's this theme that I saw in, in everything you've pretty much done, whether it's learning about yourself as a young age and figure out what you want to do with your life and then doing these really extreme whitewater trips, and, and then you decide to do this huge polar exploration trip. But you talk about how you're always searching. You're always searching for something, and and I'm not really even sure what you're going to do next. So could you tell the listeners what you mean by you're always searching for something, and also what is another trip that you have in the future? Yeah, that always searching. You know, it's it's there's a lot of words you could use to describe that, but I feel like it's for me it's it's really important to keep that tension between where you're at and where you want to be. Hmm. I don't like when I'm in the position and I achieve that goal and this tension is released and I go, oh, it's time to relax, take a break, <laughs> I'm done, I'm there. You know, it's, it's, I don't think it's healthy. I think it's good to keep this, this tension and this drive, these goals that you're still hitting. And I, th- I think there's a, a book I read once by Viktor Frankl um, called Man's Search for Meaning that I recommend anybody read. Really, really interesting. Hmm. Um, he was a psychologist who actually spent time in the Holocaust camps during hmm. the during the Nazi regime. And that was kind of one of his themes was, was what really separated the people who thrived in those camps from those who didn't were able to keep this tension and this drive for something yet attained. And, you know, I'm, I've had a lot of fun experiences on waterfalls and rivers, and I'm going to continue doing that. But I'm finding more of a pull to um, the Arctic and to new adventures. And one trip that I'm just in the infancy of planning with, with a friend is going to be at least a 100-day dog sledding trip wow. around Baffin Island. Wow. And it will be leaving in February, which is really, really cold, notorious for crazy blizzards with, you know, 100 mile an hour, 100 kilometer an hour winds. And uh, will be an adventure like no other that I've done before. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an awesome conversation. For our listeners, you can find out more about Eric at Eric Boomer. That's Eric with a K dot com. And you can also find out more about this episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Meister fans, thanks for tuning in to that episode with Eric Boomer, Eric with a K, freestyle kayaker, polar explorer, and just a generally cool guy. That was episode number 48. We've got new episodes of Mountain Meister starting next week. Make sure to tune in for those. Don't forget to tell all your friends about Mountain Meister, too. Spread the love. That really helps us out. And if you're feeling really generous, you can donate to the Challenged Athletes Foundation, who I happen to be running a marathon for in exactly one month as of this episode's release. I'm raising money for them. They're a great organization. They help physically disabled people, amputees, those with paralysis. CAF helps them pursue an active lifestyle, which is super important, and they can't do it without your support. And if that's not enough for you, I am giving away four Jansport multi-day packs. The top three donors automatically, automatically get one. 
And then I'll give away one more to a random person who donates. Please check that out at our website, mtnmeister.com. The link to donate is right on the homepage. New episodes starting next week. Until then, I am your host of Mountain Meister, Ben Shank. Thank you for listening.